Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is When the Oracle Speaks by Albert Chu. Albert Chu writes speculative fiction out of Seattle, where he currently lives with his wife and a very energetic puppy. His writing transposes the ordinary concerns of his life into fantastic settings filled with lasers and magic. By day, he works as a mechanical engineer. His interests include anime, lifting weights, and PvP games with his wife. Find him online at albertchuwrites.com. That's A-L-B-E-R-T-C-H-U-Writes.com or on Twitter at Chubert underscore writes. That's C-H-U-B-E-R-T underscore writes. Let's jump in. One year after the war's end, the royal court welcomed a hundred orphan boys into our ranks. They flew into the city's spaceport by shuttle and proceeded up the hill on the backs of the court's own palaquin bearers. Upon entering the palace grounds, they received the speeches and banquets we held in honor of their noble suffering. The boys, hailing from the kingdom's most war-torn moon, had lost everything, but now their days of hardship were over. They had become esteemed wards of the House of Hassam. After a few days, though, people in the court whispered of something else. The cooks and dressing girls repeated the same rumor. Did you hear? One of the new boys can see the future. The ministers and generals, who should have held themselves above idle gossip, indulged in speculation. If this is true, could the boy be of use? And everyone wondered how the king might act. We all knew his strength was the house's strength. If the boy possessed some special power, my father would take him. So I never had any intentions of turning the boy to my side. I was just curious. I found him sitting on a bench in the middle of a courtyard, surrounded by onlookers. It was another rainy day, and all the aristocrats had a servant beside them, shielding their heads with an umbrella. Some pretended to write calligraphy or paint, the perfect image of artful nobility, honing their talents as the rain fell around them, while others just stared. I took in this scene from the colonnade which circumscribed the courtyard. Come, I said, and my servant chaperone opened my umbrella. I'm going to talk to him. We left the colonnade shelter and entered the courtyard. The boy didn't appear special. He was skinny and looked around the same age as me, and the only thing unusual about him was his uncovered head. Rain plastered his thick, reddish curls to his forehead. They'd be a frizzy mess later. I wrinkled my nose at the thought of it. Instead of looking up as we approached, he only stared at the rain hammering the surface of the courtyard pond. He'd been doing that, it seemed, all afternoon long. My servant and I stood there, waiting, until the silent lack of recognition grew irritating. Finally, my servant spoke. Prince Mera Peshel Im Hassam wishes to speak to you. The boy turned around. His eyes swept over me. My jeweled coat jacket, inlaid with silver the ceremonial light gun at my belt, my coiled black locks cascading to my chest and lustrously shiny. The regalia of a prince was designed for impact, but his face betrayed no emotion, not fear, nor awe, nor muffled resentment, none of the familiar reactions. As if he expected it all, my irritation grew. The boy didn't bow, but I refrained from comment, 
I'd already conceded enough conversational power to this commoner. Instead, I said, You look wet. Would you like an umbrella? My servant can fetch one. He shook his head. I like the rain. It's nice on my head. The word the boy used for rain caught my attention. A formal construction, not the colloquialism that everyone in the city used. I remembered why he was here. We were both Artani, but I had been born on this moon, Artan itself, while he, like the rest of the orphans, was from Eshtan. Once the crown jewel and proudest province of the House of Hassam, now a dead moon, bombed to a ruin by the Samandirans. The boy lacked etiquette, but not only was he my house's ward, he'd also lost his parents to the Artani people's mortal enemy. I could hardly reprimand him. So instead, I said, Welcome, in the name of the House of Hassam, to your new home. Our hospitality is yours to command. The boy responded to my generosity with only a turn of his lips. I had expected gratitude, and having not received it, I was off balance. His lip slipped back into a level line, and his flat, even stare did nothing to help me regain confidence. I had never spoken to someone like this before. What's your name? I asked. You know. You know, I repeated. Well, everyone is talking about you. I wanted to know more for myself, about your powers. He sat there, his hands folded in his waterlogged lap, and waited. My smile grew pained. I'd lost patience for subtlety. Please tell me about them. How far do you see? What is it like? Can you tell me if someone will be dead in a year, or which side will win a war? Are you ever wrong? That's a lot of questions. Yuno pushed some of his dripping hair out of his eyes. And to say that you can see the future is an extreme claim, and I'm your prince. Indulge me. If you insist, he said, and I smiled harder to stop my nostrils from flaring. In the morning, I see everything that I will live through that day. At night, I sleep, and when I wake, it happens again with a new day's knowledge. It's actually fairly simple. You must see one of many possible futures, then. Perhaps the most likely. No. Yuno spread out his hands, as if to apologize for his gift. I see exactly what will happen. I'm never wrong. I narrowed my eyes. Was this what he had the entire palace believing? Did people think my father might desire this boy's power? I'm going to choose a number. I crossed my arms and allowed myself a small smile. Zero or one. Which will I choose? Zero. He didn't hesitate. Well, I chose one. Didn't you say you were never wrong? And then he began to laugh. For such a small boy, he had a very loud laugh, and it was remarkably ugly. He wheezed like a decrepit minister a week from death. His cackling was unnaturally pitched several tones higher than his normal voice. He occasionally snorted. Nobody in the courtyard pretended to practice the arts anymore. Aristocrats held their pins frozen in mid-stroke, and servants dropped their umbrellas to cover their mouths with both hands. After those umbrellas bounced off the cobblestones and clattered to rest, nothing moved but the endlessly falling rain and Yuno, who still shook with laughter. Eventually, he stopped. He reached into his pocket, withdrew a scrap of paper, and handed it to me. It, like Yuno himself, was completely soaked. I held it delicately to prevent it from dissolving in my hands. After reading a few lines, I understood. He had transcribed our entire conversation. The trap that I thought I'd laid so cleverly stared back at me from the page. 
didn't you say you were never wrong? I read the note twice, three times, while the stillness held around me. Everyone marveled at the audacity of this orphan boy, who, by laughing in the face of Prince Mayra Pichel, had surpassed even the latitude afforded to a guest. They wondered what I might do to him. I crumpled the paper in my fist and squeezed it to pulp. Come with me. We walked out of the courtyard, followed closely by my confused chaperone. Under the stairs of the gathered aristocrats, we passed through the colonnade and into the warm, sun-lamp-lit atria of the palace itself. I led him up the silver escalator to the floor with my suite, and when I reached my door, I turned to my servant. Bring some hot towels for my guest and enough tea for both of us. You may leave after doing so. The servant wiped the confusion off his face and bowed. He understood my request for privacy well enough. Yes, Prince Mera. When he left, I glanced down at Yuno's sandals. With each step he took, he pressed rainwater out of his drenched soles with a wet, squelching sound. A trail of damp footprints followed behind him. Take those off before you step inside, I said. And wait here. I'll get you something to dry your feet. A few minutes later, Yuno, no longer dripping, sat next to me on my divan. The towels the servant had provided lay in a crumpled corner outside my washing room's entrance. He'd changed into one of my spare tunics. The lavender scent of the palace maid's laundry detergent clung to him. We both held cups of tea in our hands. It never rained on Eshton. Yuno held his cup close but didn't drink, content instead to let his eyes bask in the steam. I knew, today, that I'd feel it for the first time, but I didn't expect how it could mingle with sweat and sting your eyes, or how it makes the air smell like dirt. He spoke of his dead home, his parents' grave, so lightly that I wondered if he missed it at all. Everyone knew how to speak to a victim. Everyone could console a poor orphan for his loss. But he was different, and scripted gestures of nobility rolled off of him. When he turned to face me, his steady gaze bordered on a challenge. You didn't punish me, like they all expected you to. No. I ran my fingers around a groove in my teacup. I didn't. However aggravating his laughter, however angering the exact correctness of his transcription, he was right. I had told him to prove he saw the future without error, and he had done so. How could I fault him? Perhaps he had laughed so freely because he had seen when he opened his eyes this morning, that I would not punish him. Still, I needed to ask one final question. You lied, I said. You gave the wrong answer. You say that you know the future, but how can anyone trust you? How could I trust him? Finally, Yuno took a long sip from his cup. Then he said, You wanted to use me to prove that if you knew the future, you could change it. You weren't interested in the truth. I'm not a trustworthy tool but if you want the truth, I'll give it. Was he challenging me at all? He showed no attention to the protocols of etiquette and hierarchy. He said exactly what he meant, without hiding his true meaning. What if it wasn't some inscrutable gambit? What if he just wasn't playing the game? As we finished our drinks in silence, human air creeped into the room from my suite's open bay windows. Rain blanketed the entire city, and from our vantage point, we could see the swollen, frothing banks of the Azure River, its winding course cutting the city in half. Yuno placed his empty teacup down. Thank you for the tea, Prince Mera. I held up a hand to stop him from leaving. Before you go, I said, I have a proposal. 
Instead of living in the common rooms with the other orphans, how would you like to make this your home? For a moment, I wondered how to package my motivations, but I had tried, fruitlessly, to maneuver around Yuno for the whole day, and I was tired. I never understood the tradition of princes having companions. There are dozens of boys from noble families who can fight or paint or just look pretty. The thought of randomly choosing one of them always bored me. But you're different. He waited before answering. I willed myself to release my held breath. Then he nodded. Thank you, Prince Mara, he said. I accept. I chuckled. Well, I said, waving a hand. If we're going to be friends, you can't call me by my title. My name's Appa. All right. He smiled. Something shy and genuine. The first time I'd seen that expression on his face. Appa, then. We grew older. While the commoners kept their hair short, the palace stylist knew to trim a noble's hair only short enough to prevent split ends. Eventually, my black curls cascaded down to my hips. Yuno remained my companion. Some ministers, trying to gauge his usefulness, managed to corner him and press him with questions, but they always left disappointed. He had no power. He had no more ability to change the future than an ordinary person had to change the past. And if my father himself ever made a move for him, I never saw it. We came to know each other. Yuno learned of my taste for dates, and on some afternoons, he surprised me with a plate of them, fresh from the market. The merchants sell these only rarely, he would say, but I saw that they'd have them this morning, so I walked down the hill to get us some. And, while we finished the plate together on my divan, we talked. Sometimes about idle court gossip, or the latest minister to embarrass himself in some political blunder. Sometimes about our favorite pieces of classical poetry. Sometimes about the war. On Eshton, did you ever see them? I once asked, between bites of date. The enemy. He nibbled at his own dates, taking as long to finish one as I did to eat three. I did, he said. They occupied my village for some time. What did they do? A scene of Samandir and brutality from the propaganda holovids flashed through my mind. Nothing exciting. Mostly, they were ordinary people. Even when speaking of the soldiers who'd killed his parents, his voice betrayed neither anger nor sadness. They were only there at all because they'd been ordered. I scoffed. Samandir and High Command invaded Eshton in a surprise attack a full day before they bothered declaring war. They killed millions of colonists like you. Shouldn't they pay? How? he asked. Another war? I blinked. Officially, the war had ended when my father, having turned the tide against Samandir, forced them to sue for peace. But everyone in the court knew that the ceasefire's true architects were key ministers in my father's council. He, to the contrary, had wanted to press his advantage and continue the fight. In recent months, as the peace grew stale, I'd overheard conversations where generals cursed those ministers and whispered their longing for revenge. I shook my head. I didn't say that. Still, how can you say they were just following orders? He shrugged, reached into his mouth and fished out his date's pit, still shiny with saliva. To me, everyone's following orders. While I digested his meaning, he tossed the pit into our shared waste platter. One day, some months later, the king convened a great circle where the house of Hassam's princes, ministers, and generals gathered to vote on a question placed before them. 
A great circle could shake lives and turn the fate of the entire kingdom, but nobody knew why my father had called for one. That morning, I left for the circle, walking blindly into the future, and in the evening, the circle finished, I returned to my suite. Appa. Yuno lay belly down on my rug, a book spread under his head. He craned his neck up to look at me. Welcome back. I stood a step inside the doorway and stared out the bay windows. My mouth was dry. It was an ambush, I said. After half a day in the throne room, silently watching the great circle unfold, the words spilled out of me. My father had named half the senior ministers in the court, all ones who had pushed the house of Hassam towards a ceasefire at the end of the war, and he named one member of the royal family, Prince Mera Siushim Im Hassam, my eldest brother, his heir. All these men, he said, had committed treason. His spies produced the evidence. In secret, the traitors had communicated with the Samandir in high command to negotiate a permanent peace settlement. Its terms, when Mera Siushim took the throne, the House of Hassam would reduce its army to pre-war sizes, with the promise that the Samandir would do the same. A roar went up from the generals in the room. That, I knew, was an act, a front of outrage. Surely my father had coordinated with them before convening the circle. He asked us to exile the ministers. He'd been wise, not seeking execution. That was a step too far. He called for us to disinherit Merosiashim. And you voted to do so. My mind stuttered. How was he so sure? But then, of course. I did, I said. You've known everything I've told you since this morning. I have. But then why? Why not tell me? It didn't matter. My behavior in the circle wouldn't have changed if I'd known the king's intentions beforehand. Everyone knew that Merosiashim, naively chasing peace with the Samandirans, had lost and there was nothing to do but vote for his disinheritance. Still, something sharp lodged in my chest. Betrayal. Yuno hadn't told me. You're anxious, he said. I had every reason to be anxious. With the throne's succession now in question, the king held the right to designate a new crown prince. By disinheriting Mera Siushim, he had invited us, his sons, to compete among ourselves for power, his favor, and a chance to become the next king. Some princes had fought in the war. They could exploit their military connections. Others had mothers from wealthy families. They could purchase influence. And some would eliminate their rivals with poison or light gun fire. Why not, if they could get away with it? I had none of these advantages. And in a contest of violence, I was under-equipped. I can see my future. I felt cold, but I resisted the urge to tighten my coat around my shoulders. Prince Mera Pashel, a pawn in my brother's succession game. Nobody will notice if I die. I glanced down at Yuno and felt a spark of hope. I did have one advantage. But you can help me, I said. Your powers, I've always thought they can't do anything. But that isn't true, is it? When you go by those dates, how do you ever know that the market is selling them that day? The knowledge just happens. I only see that I buy dates, Appa then I buy them. I shook my head. Couldn't you use your powers to help me against my brothers, to give me access to this hidden knowledge? No. He spoke this simple refusal without malice or spite, but frustration still gripped me. You don't understand. What don't I understand? 
I could just as easily share with you your doom. What if one morning I told you that you'd fall into a trap that day? What if I told you how you'd tried to escape that trap, knowing that it was there and still fail? You already tried to best the future once, Appa. I stared at Yuno and remembered that day, years ago, when he had handed me that waterlogged note. Besides, he said, looking up at me with half-lidded eyes, I have nothing to do with a power struggle between the princes of Assam. I bristled. Even when my life's at stake? It doesn't have to be. You could walk away, couldn't you? If you gave up your title, nobody would have any reason to quarrel with you. I stepped backwards and curled my lip. Then, without saying more, I turned and walked into my study. The door clicked shut behind me, and silence, broken only by the heavy sound of my breathing, pressed in. My fist had clenched when I'd heard Yuno's suggestion of surrender, and slowly I relaxed it. Once, the king had also been a small prince, but when the incompetence of his brother, the reigning monarch, led us to lose half of Eshton to the enemy, he had seized the future. He took the throne by force. He faced down Samandir's army, larger and better equipped, and won. He did not surrender to fate. Like my father, I had my wit. If I played the game carefully, gathering information, cutting deals, and devising plans, I could come out alive on the winning side, a respected prince, with armies and ships sworn to my banner. A small part of me dreamed of winning everything and wearing my father's crown. With Yuno's help or without it, I wouldn't surrender. For one moment, I heard again his ugly laughter. I quickly stifled its sound. For months, I had chased a secret. The thread began with a corrupt customs official, a prime target for me to blackmail and a useful mine of information, one of the secrets he revealed. Several months ago, a series of shipments, addressed to a place that didn't exist, had arrived at the docks by the Azure River. After he'd fabricated papers for them at the behest of an unknown party, they disappeared a week later. Gradually, the thread unraveled. Irregularities in the hiring of several dockhands, strange incidents when the city guard had cordoned off sections of the docks from public access, citing leaks of dangerous chemicals, obvious pretexts. Then the final clue. When I looked into all the companies which had recently filed dock work permits, one company existed only on paper, and they owned only a single warehouse. When I staked out that warehouse, I found its entrance guarded by a pair of security automata. They were camouflaged to appear commonplace, but I knew better. These were of an elite line allowed only to members of the court. If any trespasser failed to give them the correct passphrase, they would attack, and only a battalion of armed men could hope to dislodge them. I'd been thrilled. Some member of the court, perhaps even one of my rival brothers, had hidden something inside that warehouse, and now I only needed to crack it open. But at this final step, my progress stalled. I found no leads as to who exactly owned the warehouse, and I had no way past the security automata. I didn't have the passphrase, and without it, I was stuck. Something's wrong with you, Yuno said. We sat across from each other on my rug, a chessboard between us. I'd carved the board in pieces myself and given them to him as a gift many years ago. He had smiled when I presented them. But Appa, he said, you always win. Now he noticed my distracted play. 
I leaned backwards on my palms, sinking my fingers into my rug's deep pile, and released a long exhale. It's a political matter, nothing serious. Though we still lived in the same suite and drank tea together, I'd regarded him differently ever since he'd refused to help me on the day of the Great Circle. I needed to secure my future, buffeted as I was by the instability of a house without an heir. What was the point in sharing with him my life of blackmail and backroom deals? If he wasn't helping me, what did he mean to me? He grabbed one of his pawns at an angle and rubbed circles with the edge of its base against the board. Wood scraped hoarsely against wood. It looks serious, he said. When you worry, you don't hide it well. At least around me. You must forgive me. I strained to keep my voice light. A prince did not allow a barb to offend. I'm simply trying to open a locked door, but I lack the key. I didn't want to burden you with something that doesn't interest you. The key? A passphrase. Yes, he said, and I looked up. The confidence in his speech, the flat set to his eyes, the relaxed slump of his shoulders, all familiar. You know, never cared to feign surprise. Would you like to know it? I stared at him. If you go to the store tonight, speak a passphrase and gain entry, you'll know it's the correct one, he said. What if you then return and give the passphrase to me? If, tonight, you do that, then I already know it. I can speak it now. I saw, again, the circles that Yuno drew on the chessboard with his pawn, and I shivered. Still, I didn't understand. But why help me? I asked. You said, I said that I wasn't a tool, that if you wanted the truth, I would give it. I tensed in apprehension. Was he warning me? Would the warehouse's contents not benefit me? But I couldn't let my doubts and questions dissuade me. I couldn't command the future with a fearful hand. I exhaled and willed myself to relax. Give me the passphrase. He leaned forwards and whispered it in my ear. After that, we continued our game without speaking. Only the clack of pieces against the board broke the silence. Ah, he said. I had trapped him in a mate in five two turns ago but he'd kept playing as if he hadn't seen. You've won, haven't you? I have. He shrugged and tipped his king over. I resign. Good game. You as well. I stood to prepare for an excursion to the warehouse, and Yuno began to lay the pieces back inside the velvet-lined wooden case that I'd made with the set. Each piece slid into place with an insistent shush. After you come back, he said, we should talk. The light coming through my bay windows began to dim. Artan's ever-present rain clouds gathered to obscure the sun, and in a few minutes, rain would flow down the city streets. All right, I said. We will. I left. Behind me, Yuno continued to place the chess pieces back into their case. Outside the warehouse, the rain fell in sheets. It whipped the Azure River into a frenzy, and the waters responded with a hungry roar as they swirled past the dock. It pounded the warehouse's loading bay, transforming it into a marshy field of shallow ponds and rocky islands. Nobody, not even a dock worker, was about. The only things that moved were the automata. They paced back and forth, their armor caked with rust, and as they splashed through the watery field, droplets running down their limbs, they showed no signs of minding. The shadow of a narrow alleyway enveloped me, hiding me from the automata. For a moment, anticipation and fear flickered in my chest. 
before I exhaled and snuffed them both out. I stepped out of the alleyway, protected by my umbrella. Espionage mission or not, I wasn't letting my hair get wet. Both automata stopped and turned to face me. The rain filled the void of silence left by their stilled feet. I continued walking forwards with purpose. One automata raised a hand, its rusted joints creaking as it did. It spoke in a gravelly, muffled voice. Halt. That was the first layer of defense, meant to deter commoners who'd ignored the posted signs against trespassing and somehow wandered this far into the docks. I didn't slow. At first, the automata showed no reaction. Those machine minds, hidden to me, recalculated and reconsidered. Then, as one, they both shivered. The illusion of rusted armor fell from them like an unclasped cloak, and now their carapaces, comprised of thousands of scales, gleamed in the rainwater. Provide validation. Its voice was as smooth and bright as a stream of molten metal. I spoke the passphrase from memory. Clouds of flame, flower verdigris, in a summer field, a single stone. The automata pivoted on their feet away from me, like a door swinging open, and I exhaled. Validation accepted. Enter. With the rain still pounding my open umbrella, I walked past the automata's unblinking stairs and entered the warehouse. First, it was quiet. Then, the overhead lighting turned on with a droning buzz. I held one hand to my brow to shield my eyes from the unexpected brightness, while my other hovered by my light gun. If there was a trap, they'd spring it now. But nothing moved, and slowly, I relaxed. I saw what the warehouse concealed, and at first, I didn't understand. It stood in the middle of the stark white floor, its matte black chassis drawing the eye like a dark stone in a field of sand. Six conical thrust nozzles dangled from the underside. Now, they all pointed straight down, but I knew from the hollow vids how, in combat, they could turn and dance to make the craft fly in impossible ways. On either side of the nose, weapons bays brimmed with missiles, hexagonal ports arrayed like the speckles of a cobra, its hood spread, staring back at me. A hover bomber. And as I circled around it, I saw, emblazoned on its side, the emblem of Samandir. Pallets of sealed crates lined the warehouse next to the hover bomber. I pried them open at random and examined their contents. Short-barreled rifles, the same ones brandished by the enemy in both propaganda holovids and classified combat footage. Clean-pressed mustard-yellow uniforms, the signature mark of Samandir and shock troopers. All the props needed to stage an attack in the city and have everyone in Artan think Samandir responsible. Such an attack, ending in the loss of Artani life, would surely cause all-out war to resume. But who could have planned something like this? If I discovered the general or prince responsible for this plot, I could ensure they were executed tomorrow morning. Then I felt the gaze of that hover bomber, laden with deadly missiles, pressed against the back of my head, and my thoughts came to a choking halt. I knew the answer. Only someone with absolute power, above the reach of punishment, could have set this plan in motion. He had been forced to end his campaign before he destroyed the enemy to his satisfaction. Now he would have his glory, and his revenge. My father. I'd misunderstood him. Night had fallen by the time I returned to my suite, and Yuno was sitting on the divan, a steaming porcelain teapot before him on the parlor table. My room's sun lamps, having dimmed with the onset of night, 
now emitted a warm, flickering glow. For a moment, I stood inside the doorframe and watched the teapot's shadow dance across the table. The rain clouds had parted. The whole city was visible from my suite. Houses and storefronts and lounges, each a point of light, cascaded down the hill to meet the river. You're back, Yuno said. I sat beside him on the divan, my back straight, and accepted his offered teacup. As I told him what I'd found, the tea cooled in my hands. I didn't drink. When I finished, I turned to face him. You knew, I said. You knew I'd find the hover bomber there. You've known of the king's plot this entire day. I told you. His voice was quiet. If you wanted the truth, I would give it to you. Yes, as promised, he'd led me to the truth, and now I found it nothing but a burden. I could only submit to the king's authority and accept that he held the reins of the future, not me. His lie would send millions of Artani people to their deaths, and I could do nothing. Nothing. No. I stood from the divan. I won't accept this. I paced from end to end of my suite, my naked feet padding against my rug's softness. The room's cramped size constrained me. My thoughts outgrew it. No single member of the court can stop the king, but I can turn consensus against him, and to accomplish that... If the votes of a great circle fell in my favor, I could avert war. I will convince them, I said. Is honor dead in our ranks? My father's plot makes a mockery of every martyr who died fighting the invaders. I set my teacup, now cold, on the table. They'll see that my solution is the only path forwards. Quietly, so that no commoners are made aware, the king will surrender his rule to a council of regents. His plan must not proceed. I saw it all clearly, how my words, carefully crafted, would sway them. How I would gain power over that room. How I could fight and win. I opened my bay windows and braced my hands against the sill. The night air was cool in my face, and before me, the city lights unfurled. Something surged inside me. Even as he descended into his own lust for war, my father tried to command fate, and now I would do the same. I could accomplish something that men in the house of Hassam would speak of for decades to come. How one small prince, given a chance for greatness, had defied a king and prevented war. I turned around and smiled at Yuno. You see, don't you? As seconds passed in silence, my smile fell. You're relying on the court to prevent war. Neither relish nor contempt marked his voice, only a quiet sadness. But the last time they had a chance, they voted against peace. You did too. He prickled my face. It's different now, I said. My father wants to lie. It's base. It lacks nobility. We're talking about war. He stared at me. Nobility has nothing to do with it. You need to look at the situation clearly, Appa. I advanced from the window until I stood only a foot before him. And what do you mean by that? The sun is almost down. The great circle won't happen today. You have no special vision, and you see no more clearly than me. While I'd raised my voice, his remained level. But I do. You're a prince of Hassam, and you believe in your house's virtue. But you can't see its darkness. You can't see that you won't stop them. My eyes widened. He truly was the same boy I had first met. A guest who had laughed in the face of a prince and, somehow, escaped punishment. 
even as he dishonored the name of Hassam, I found that the lesser offense. I won't stop them? I curled my lip. Now I understand. You want me to give up. You want me to be chained to the future as you are. I only want you to accept the truth, Appa. The future holds war and you can't change that. Stop saying that. When you speak your prophecies, do you enjoy reminding me of what I can't change? Surely it's amused you all these years, watching me fight for the smallest of chances to control my fate. Perhaps, instead of continuing to struggle in uncertainty, I really should live as you do, under destiny's unerring command, just like a fucking slave. Then there was silence, except for a faint ringing as that scream, my scream, echoed off the walls. Cold air rushed in from my bay windows, raising goosebumps on my arms. My full cup of tea still sat on the parlor room table. There was the bookcase where, on the top shelf, we stored our favorite collections of classical poetry, exchanged as gifts when we were boys. There was the mirror where I had tried to tame his curls with the palace's finest hair products before giving up and suggesting he shave himself bald instead. There was the divan where we'd sat, side by side, and eaten dates. You know, I said. You have no idea. He was crying. You've never seen. I stood there, as anger washed out of me and shame rolled in. I could not remember seeing him shaken before, and now he stood before me, drowning. On Eshton, I didn't always wake up with the day's knowledge. On the days when I did, I was useful. I told the village of a dust storm's approach and we took shelter. I told the Samandirans that their military police would soon come for inspection, and they hid their Artani wives and children, so the police didn't whip anyone or take any children away. Whenever I saw a disaster approach, I also saw myself helping people, saving people. His tears guttered out. He turned his head to look out the bay window, as if his gaze crossed the distance between moons to look on his old home. But I always liked the days when I didn't see the future better. On those days, whatever I did, I did it because I wanted to, not because I had seen myself do it. I was in control. He looked up at me from the floor. I couldn't move. One day, the House of Hassam's hover bombers came over the horizon. They hit the Semindiran garrison. I remember the screaming, the fire, smoke everywhere. I didn't know that I would find Ima and Iba under the rubble. He shook his head and smiled, even as I stepped backwards in shock. I didn't see the future that day. I still believed that village boys controlled their own destinies. But since that day, I've understood. I have no power. Now, there isn't a morning that I don't see, because I'll obey whatever instructions destiny gives me, just like a slave, as you said. Why wouldn't I? I've nothing left to lose. Words froze on my lips. The smile slipped from Yuno's face. He stood, and I smelled my own shampoo on his hair as he brushed past me, and then he was gone, out the sweet door. The rain started again. I walked over to the bay windows and closed them, snuffing out the sounds of the city. Only the rain's pattering remained, fingers tapping on my skull, and I gave in under their weight, leaned against the wall, and fell to the floor. I did not know myself. I was no prince. I was that monster, screaming in rage at Yuno, ruled by my fear of the future. Look at the situation clearly, 
I'd always thought myself so clever. I saw through the court's placated nobility, the propaganda to glorify the house of Hassam. That messaging was for the commoners, not a prince. But I'd bought the same kind of lie as everyone else. Without thinking, I'd assumed that the enemy had killed Yuno's parents, because I didn't understand that a bomb was just a bomb. I sat there for some time. The sun lamps began to dim, and as the hours passed, reality settled in my mind. Impending war with Samandir. The bleak chance that a great circle might prevent the slaughter. Yuno's revelation about his past. He wasn't here, and I realized that even if Artan burned tomorrow, I needed to know that he was safe now. I stood, breathed, and left my suite. I searched the common areas of the palace room by room. The few servants still awake cast each other nervous glances, wondering if they should offer help, wondering if I'd gone mad. I'd searched almost three full floors of the palace before I remembered. I was wasting my time looking indoors. I took the escalator down to the grounds and walked outside. I had crossed half the courtyard before I realized that I had no umbrella, and rainwater was soaking my hair, weighing down the curls until they lost their definition plastering them to my neck and back. There he was, lying on the bench by the pond. Only the dim glow from the palace windows above us illuminated him. I'm sorry, I said. He tilted his head back to look at me. You know, when I heard what you would say this morning, I wasn't surprised. I always knew what you thought. You knew me better than anyone else in the palace then. You're good at hiding, he said, but not that good. I closed my eyes. Please come inside. You'll catch cold out here. If you want the suite to yourself, I'll find a library for the night. If you want a different room entirely, I'll have it arranged. And if you want to stay here, I'll bring a tent. It's all right. I've slept in that suite with you for years. You're still the same person. I stood there, turning his words over as the rain fell around me. And then I nodded. He took my offered hand to hoist himself off the bench, and together we made it back to my suite. We towed ourselves off in silence and stumbled into bed. I was about to close my eyes when I realized what I'd forgotten to do. The passphrase, I whispered to Yuno. Clouds of flame, flower verdigris, in a summer field, a single stone. Then sleep took us. I watched Yuno's face as he woke. I thought to capture the moment when the future's knowledge entered him, but he moved from sleep to wakefulness as easily as crossing a threshold, and his face betrayed neither surprise, nor dismay, nor understanding. His eyes merely slid open, and he turned to look at me. Appa, he said. It was still me. We dressed and ate breakfast together. I asked him about his childhood on Eshton and for the first time he really talked, about the stories the soldiers told of life on Samandir, before they were conscripted, about the nights when he looked up and saw Artan, a blue disc crawling across the sky, about his parents, his Ima, returning from the day's work, the smell of machine oil wafting off of her, his Iba, greeting her at the door with a kiss. After we finished eating, I poured us two cups of tea. We nursed them on the divan. I have been an awful host to you, I said. His eyes were closed. His nostrils dilated as he inhaled his tea's fragrance. 
Yes, you have been. Though I have no right, I must ask you for something. His breath whistled across his teacup's lip. Go on. I will convene a great circle today. I will reveal what I know of the king's plan and do what is in my power to stop it. My hands shook. Here, in the morning quiet, the world was still and ready to shatter at the lightest touch. A sheet of glass spiderwebbed with cracks. Tension pulsed in my temples. A sweat beaded my forehead. I didn't want to step forwards into the future. I couldn't look down. The treasures and trophies of a prince's life surrounded me. My richly colored rug. The jeweled jacket hanging by my door. Vials upon vials of hair cream and conditioner and gel. I exhaled and released it all. In my mind, the rain washed it down the hill to the river, and the waters took it. Please, I said. Come with me when I go. Watch what happens, so that you can tell me now, because you already see it, what happens in the circle. And if you see that you fail, then you should tell me. I will still try. I must. You tell me, Yuno said, and I shivered at his words. Why you want it this way? I leaned back into my divan and inhaled the scent, soaking its fibers of home. Only darkness lay ahead of me. Because, I said, whatever happens, I won't hide from it. Yuno says that we walk into the throne room together. He says, The throne room is held, like a jewel in a scepter, in the palace's highest spire. As he walks inside, Yuno passes his eyes over the glass floors and walls, shining with reflected light. He can't believe it. We're so high up that we can watch the rain clouds roll over Artan's surface. The princes, ministers, and generals watch us. The princes, my half-brothers, whisper among themselves. Yuno sees me in them. The curled black hair, the sharp, proud nose, and in their eyes, the faint, ever-present glimmer of fear. Even in this glass room without shadow, their eyes dart from corner to corner, looking for hidden enemies. King Azora Mera Imhasam sits at the front of the room, his generals arrayed on either side of his throne. We kneel before him, and the room falls silent. Nobody knows why I have convened this circle. Yuno sees me trembling. After we leave the room, I will tell him that I wanted to run, that the knowledge that he gave me on the divan, that he gives me now as he speaks, nearly strangled the words from me. But still, I speak. I address the princes and ministers in the room. I tell them of the king's plot to instigate another war with Samandir. For a moment, some of their faces break in shock, but they quickly conceal it. I speak of honor and peace. How many of our bannermen will die in another war? How many Artani conscripts, merchants, students, engineers? How many of the enemy, sent to fight us by powers beyond their will, do we wish to kill? All for a lie? I place my resolution before them. The king must surrender his rule. Seconds pass in absolute silence. Then the king breaks it. When he speaks, anger presses his words into a low growl. First, he turns to the ministers. Remember, he says, when you bureaucrats and administrators feared that the enemy would destroy us. In the shadows, you whispered to me that I alone could save our house. You chose me as your king. They avert their eyes and nod. 
Half their number is gone. Then he turns to his generals. Remember, he says, when we took our army's leaders from the academy, not the battlefield. To replace them, I selected each of you regardless of your previous rank or station. I chose you for your strength, and together we would have achieved total victory were it not denied from us. Will you fight with me again? From the front, they roar their answer with one voice. Glory to the king! Glory to the king! Then he turns to his sons. Remember, he says, my generosity. War is my gift to you. Who among you will drive our armies into Samandir and attain greatness? Who will defend my legacy? I am still watching, and I have yet to make my choice. The princes glare at each other, and then they follow their father's eyes and look at me. Softly, the king curses me. You, he says. I thought you cunning and capable. To act, to war, to command. This is your province as a prince. What has rotted your mind? I do not answer him. You know understands. Nothing remains to be said. I call for votes. The outcome is obvious. The ministers think of themselves. If any of them vote with me but my motion fails, they are doomed. The generals want war, and they don't care how it comes about. And my brothers crave the power that my father dangles before them, a chance to rule fate instead of being ruled by it. A minister counts the votes. Unanimously, the great circle rejects my resolution. Yuno stands next to me, silent. He watches as the king's hand rises. I stood before my father in his throne room. Every word he'd spoken doubled in my ears. I heard, as one, the cold clarity of his voice as he spoke in the present, and the soft crackle of Yuno's voice as he relayed the king's words in the past. The uncontrollable tremor in my shoulders, the view of the clouds crawling beneath us, it was all as Yuno said it would be. I, too, watched as the king raised his hand. He extended his arm straight from his chest and curled his fingers into a fist, as if he grasped an invisible scepter. I exhaled. It was the Hassamite gesture of command. You no longer have power here, he said, and you are nothing to me. If any power remained to you, I would command you to die. But now you are beneath even that. So I command you instead to disappear. I will never hear you speak another word, and I will never see you again. Cracks in his mask of royal calm revealed the contempt roiling beneath. As a child, I'd seen him as a great man. I had fantasized of sharing in his greatness. Now, I turned my back on him and let those fantasies fall from me. As you know, when I walked out of the throne room, I looked straight ahead, without returning anyone's stare. I had walked into the future, knowing that I would not succeed. In that room, I had seen the great power of the wheels of war. Was my destiny to place my hands on them, over and over, failing each time to stop their turning? Then I would do it, if only for the hope of one victory. Our footsteps echoed in the narrow passageway as we descended the steps of the throne room spire. My father had not ordered my execution, 
but he had killed whatever remained of Prince Mera Pashel M. Hassam in that room. A wild and roaring future now lay ahead of me. Perhaps it would carry me to distant lands and lives beyond my small imagination. Perhaps, in a week, it would dash me against the rocks. We returned to our suite together. I waited until nightfall, when Yuna was asleep, to leave. In the note I tucked under his arm, I was not sentimental. I had forfeited that privilege when I called him a slave. Instead, I only left instructions on how to find an off-moon safe house, beyond the reach of the house of Hassam and war, though I could make no guarantees. I had already packed my bags that morning. I slung them over my shoulder, opened the bay windows, and leaned out. In a few minutes, I had rappelled down the palace wall and disappeared into the city. If I had burdened Yuno know, with emotion in my note, what would I have said? In my head, I apologized to him for my endless offenses. The arrogance, the fear, the anger. That, frozen in the past, I could not erase. I wished him well as he walked into tomorrow, knowing that the future could not be commanded, and hoping, as much as I could, all the same. The herbal smell of tea bloomed in my nose. A fresh date's thick paste coated my tongue. It tore my heart, and I smiled. I thanked you know. It was fitting to remember him by this pain. I'd made arrangements to leave the city by river ferry. The boat's silhouette, a black shadow punctured by light shining through the portholes, bobbed on the waves. The creaking of the wooden pier overlapped with the rush of water beneath me. One of my men waited for me by the entrance ramp to the boat. He walked up. Sir, he said, his voice low. There's a problem. I tensed. Not even out of the city and already beset by obstacles. What is it? It's him. But the dim starlight, I saw that he seemed more confused than frightened. I don't know how he found the boat. Perhaps it's better if you speak to him directly. And there he was, walking down the boat's ramp. Finding shortcuts down the hill has been useful, Yuno said. He yawned. For things like this. Wherever we go next, I hope we won't have to live in one room for years on end. Maybe we can find some shortcuts together. I only stared a moment before I burst into laughter. I didn't need to ask him how he'd found me. After a second, his laughter, exactly as ugly as I remembered, joined mine. Eventually, the gravity of my situation reasserted itself, and the laughter died. You know, I said, this is foolish. There's too much danger in staying with me, and... We locked eyes. Why would you want to? My time in the palace with you was interesting. Complicated, he said. You were often cruel to me without realizing it. But you were also kind. His voice was soft. I don't know what the future holds, he said. And at this, his lips twitched in an ironic smile. You may become more cruel than kind, and then I'll slip away some night and walk alone. But I'm not ready for that yet. It's been some time since my life held something I cared not to lose. I considered the qualities I wished for myself. For so long I had striven to be nobler and bolder, but now I wanted to ride this boat to a place where I could find humility, kindness, where I could be happy to say that I was still myself. I wanted to argue with Yuno and push him from my path so that I knew, no matter what happened, I could harm him no more. But I had already harmed him and here he remained, 
so I only said, thank you. Besides, he said, holding up a lumpy bag, you forgot your hair products. It's actually customary for exiled nobility to cut their hair. Perhaps I should do so before I board. I turned to my man, who snapped to attention. Do you have a knife? Yuno's face crumbled into a pout of mock dismay. Oh, let's not be so dramatic. That hair shouldn't go to waste. I smiled. After I boarded, we walked to the prow together. The boat cast off from the dock, and gradually, the city's lights grew dimmer behind us. I closed my eyes and surrendered to the night. That was When the Oracle Speaks by Albert Chu. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.